I switched gears after Christmas and went to the book of Joel, and then we went to Obadiah. And about that time, one of my boys who remained nameless, he happens to be the youngest of my boys, uh, said, Dad, what happened to Matthew? It was like, poof, it was gone. And so uh, I guess he was uh, enjoying the series I'm taking it as. And uh, I do like to vary my preaching and uh, going, like particularly a long book like Matthew's got 28 chapters and uh, I go paragraph by paragraph and I want to make sure that we have a good diet because if we're not careful, I could be in Matthew for the next three years. And so I, I try to bring in some Old Testament into our New Testament diet and vice versa. If I'm in Genesis, I'll take a break from that and go to uh, New Testament. So we're coming back now. Um, we're going to have, we're going to be looking at uh, a group of three portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Matthew, just to orient you back to this book, Matthew um, is a, has kind of grouped the teachings of Jesus around five, what he kind of, five sermons, if you will. And uh, the most prominent sermon that you probably will think of is the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters five through seven. And I think there's a slide there. There we go. Uh, and Sermon on Mission was the last sermon that we spent time looking at last fall. And uh, there's three more sermons coming up. There's a block sermon on the kingdom, I call it, uh, uh, talking about the parables. And then we have uh, the sermon on the church, uh, chapters 18 to 20, and then sermon on the end of the world, uh, 24 to 25. And so just to help you understand, we're in chapter 11 uh, through 12 over the next little while. Um, but between these sermons, there's these intervals, uh, there's anecdotes, there are questions that are asked of Jesus, uh, there's the passion narrative as well. And these intervals help us to visualize what Jesus was like as a person uh, for the most part. Uh, they help us to not just think about Jesus as separate from his teaching, but we get to know him as a person, the, the real flesh and blood Jesus. And Christianity is very unique in that it ties the teaching of Jesus directly to his person. They're inseparable. They're not to be seen as distinct from one another. Uh, Buddhism, on the other hand, uh, is more interested in Buddha's teaching than in him as a person. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, claimed to be the Son of God, and that claim has to be evaluated, so we have to know him. We have to understand who he was personally. Uh, he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and you can't ascend to our Heavenly Father without going through Him and knowing who He is. Uh, it's kind of like knowing Jesus on a very deep, a very uh, personal, and even an emotional level, as you would perhaps know a family member that you love. And that puts things very differently. Um, some of you may know that on my cell phone cover, I have on my cell phone uh, protection thing, what's it called, cover? Uh, I have a, a drawing of Jonathan Edwards. 
Uh, you know, I'm, some of you know I'm studying and working on an advanced degree. Um, as much as I enjoy studying Jonathan Edwards, I don't love him as a family member. Uh, historical people, we tend not to place that kind of weight upon. Jesus, on the other hand, is different because he is the Son of God, and we have family with our Heavenly Father through him. And so it's really important to understand the claim and the eyewitnesses that recorded the events and the life of Jesus knew that it was going to be a challenge for subsequent followers to appreciate the depth of his person without these narratives. And it's really helpful for us to spend some time looking at them. Uh, Matthew 11 and 12, I believe that there are six portraits of Jesus. Um, portraits, uh, almost like master portraits. Um, in art history, uh, the old masters refers to any European painter from 1800 prior to roughly early 14, maybe late 1300s. But they were a part of a master guild uh, in which after they were fully trained, they, they used the latest of technique and style to draw out depth Paintings often took years to put together uh, a system of putting glaze and uh, using burnt amber to kind of create depth and perspective uh, of facial features and, and uh, landscapes that were very realistic, contrasts of light and dark. And uh, I, I, I compare Matthew in some ways to like a master painter because he's helping us to kind of see Jesus as a believable person against the backdrop of the society in which he lived. And the first portrait of Jesus, Matthew shows him as the promised Messiah, but not in the way that most people expected or hoped that their Messiah would be. And it is very easy to miss what you're looking for when your mind is set on something else. Uh, this week, uh, my neighbor and I uh, spent time looking for a survey stake uh, between our properties. Uh, we were actually looking for a very thick survey stake, uh, maybe eight to 10 inches off the ground because he plans to build a, a garage and we were looking at where that might land, and we, we got out the measuring tapes, the 100-foot measuring tapes, and found other stakes, and we were looking for this. We couldn't find the corner pin for our properties, and it took us, like, forever. Uh, we were about ready to give up. We were, like, kicking leaves. We were blowing leaves and trying to find this silly thing, and uh, we were just about ready to give up. And there was this, like, faint old red tape kind of meshed into the ground and we started to dig and we thought it's got to be around here somewhere got to be around here somewhere and so we were about ready actually to give up and then we found it it was only an inch off the ground and it was of a different kind of metal and so our minds were trying to draw us towards what we thought we were looking for but we totally missed what it actually was. 
And we do have hard times at times figuring these things out. We, we, when we lock our minds into what we think we're going to see, we can, be, we can be confused, and our vision can take us in wrong directions. Now, in this text, now we're going to take a moment to read it, I want you to see that Jesus is engaging with people who have a vision of what the Messiah is going to look like, and Jesus is taking a step back and help reorient them to who he is as a person. So let's, let's listen to the text as we read Matthew 11, verse 2 through uh, 19. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed? shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. You sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, they said. He is a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, I'm looking at this text in three movements. In the first section, verse 2 through 6, I see Jesus showing us in this conversation that Jesus is not always what we're looking for. We may have a different vision of what we think Jesus will do for us And we can miss the fact that he has intentions to do something to us. Now, from prison, John asks this burning question that's that's really challenging him. His circumstances are really stretching his faith because he's in prison. This is not what he expected of the Messiah when he came. Verse 3, it says, Are you the one who is to come, or are we looking for another? And he literally is saying, are you the 
coming one. See, John was confused. He was the good guy. You know, John's the good guy, and he's in prison. This makes no sense. There's supposed to be liberty, and the, the captives are supposed to be set free. What, what, what's going on here? And there is confusion about Jesus' purpose that we see in verse 2. Uh, John, you see, had preached a different kind of Messiah. We don't have time to go back to Matthew 3, but you can read it another time. But when John preached about the Messiah, he was preaching a Messiah that would bring spirit and fire, bringing the, bringing the judgment of God upon those who are in opposition to him. And G Jesus was really baffling John. Jesus was less brimstone. Jesus was less fire. He was less overthrow of the Romans. He was less liberty to the captives. He's, but he had authority, though, too. He taught in a way that no one else taught. But yet he didn't, really, he didn't lead a revolt against those who were in oppressive state over them. Now, Jesus did miracles, but none of them were done strategically in Jerusalem. Man, that would have been the way to do it. I mean, that's, you can't think of a more emotional place for Jews than Jerusalem, the city of Zion, the city of David. Man, these backwoods miracles, I know they're powerful. I know they're coming from God. Are we still looking for another to come? Man, Jesus was not doing what was expected. And now, John is starting to have some doubts. You know, when people come to Christ and hear and become acquainted with him for the first time, they often expect that the emotional joy that they experience will continue indefinitely. If you will, they're looking for pixie dust and unicorns to continue. But the reality is we still live in a harsh world and when we come to Jesus, we have to have proper expectations that he's intending not to change all of our circumstances. He's intending to change us. And it's important that we have a correct understanding so as not to lead towards doubt. Now, confusion sometimes is inevitable, and it can lead towards doubt. And that's where John sends questions from prison to Jesus, and throughout church history, this has been a little bit problematic for people who have tried to interpret the Bible faithfully, and at times, they didn't allow John the Baptist to have doubt. Uh, they actually kind of reworked this text to kind of make it appear as though John wasn't doubting because saints don't doubt, and that was the thought processes that they had. Very few, only Tertullian in the early centuries really spoke of John having a true sense of doubt right here. But when doubt comes and things don't align with our expectations, doubt, if we're not careful, can lead towards disillusionment. Disillusionment. I don't know if you've ever been disillusioned and not received what you had hoped and it sets you into a tailspin. I personally have experienced that, and frankly, it's very akin to depression. 
especially if you don't let, you don't check it with truth. Disillusion can really set your feelings in a whirl, and you feel as though your own beliefs that things that you've put your hope and trust in for years are unraveling. It's very disorienting, and it stings very, very hard. And I think it also reveals something that we may actually, when we come towards disillusionment, maybe we have been putting undue trust in a particular system, whether it may be a particular political party, it might even be a friend who doesn't purport themselves the way we had expected them to, to treat us. And if we're not careful, doubt about our situation can move into disillusionment. And when that comes, we can get into a very cynical attitude by which we distrust everything around us. And we have to be very careful not to allow other gods out there to influence our hearts. Now, John may be uncertain about what Jesus' purpose is, but Jesus is not. He is certain about why he's there, and he knows why he's there. And in verses 4 to 5, we see Jesus' certainty of his purpose. Verses 4 to 5, we read, uh, Jesus responded to them, you know, when they asked, shall we look for another? He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Notice that he doesn't say, go tell them what I am doing. There's a humility here, but yet an opportunity to use their senses, to engage with what's going on, and tell them that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But in verses 4 to 5, we see John being reoriented from his doubt, his discouragement, towards the truth. And Jesus refers him to the word of God for a sense of why Jesus is doing what he's doing. Uh, you know, John had heard the proclamation at the river. When Jesus came up out of the water, he heard the words from a heavenly father, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He even saw the dove come from the sky representing the Holy Spirit and alighting upon him and resting there. And those words and also those images had carried John along pretty well until he was in prison. And then he forgot. And it's really important for us to take note that in what Jesus quotes, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, he selects portions from Isaiah to encourage John, and he does it from the word of God. Really important for us to see that. There's lots of places we could look to try to form some stability when we're in doubt. But the most critical thing for us to turn to is the word of God who transcends all of our circumstances. Now John hears and he, he's seeing through the, those witnesses telling him about what 
what Jesus is doing. And Jesus paraphrases the prophecies. Uh, I'm going to just kind of step back for a minute into Isaiah, and I want you to hear the, more of the context. Jesus quoting from uh, particularly Isaiah 9, 29, verse 35 and 61, kind of, kind of brings these all together. And in this text, Isaiah says, Say to those who are having an anxious heart, like John, be strong, fear not. Remember last Sunday? Behold, your God will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the eyes of the deaf unstopped. The poor have good news preached to them of encouragement. And as Jesus retells these themes, he's speaking in code, if you will. He's not publicly in this setting saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, come arrest me now. He's giving code that John, being familiar with the scriptures, would take it and understand. Now, there's something really important that Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't quote the whole thing. The Messiah was also prophesied as bringing fire and judgment, and that is true. But in this instance, Jesus only quotes back to John those positive works of the Spirit that are moving in his ministry. In another place, John said, in John chap another place in the Gospels, John recorded a time where Jesus spoke more openly about himself and his role in coming. And he said in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so seeing what Jesus is doing and hearing what he says is critical to being saved through him. You might want a different way for God to save you from your personal experiences, but God sent his son and you need to hear him and respond to his message because he is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and is the object to which we look so that we may see an entrance to our Heavenly Father. See, that's called faith. When we put our hope outside of ourselves in an object, we're putting our confidence in, hopefully, in the Lord God himself. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul said this, that faith, notice, comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. John here is receiving the word of Christ through these witnesses, and he's hearing the word of Christ, and that is enough to cause him to hope and renew his faith in the purposes of Christ. Now, in verse 6, they're really an interesting response to John. Now, he says to John, uh, specifically, these are the things they're doing, but in verse 6, he says, and blessed, blessed are, will you be, John, if you're not offended by me. There's a certainty 
that can lead towards peace. Now, what Jesus says, I'm not saying is easy to believe. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is, if you take him at his word and not be offended by what he's telling you, you can find peace through him. Jesus, at times, had been very offensive in his communication. He had been, it it may surprise us that Jesus didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He didn't. And I want to share an incident because it's critical to understanding who Jesus is from John's gospel and the account of the feeding of the 5,000. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus came to the other side of the lake and there was a lot of people starting to gather towards Jesus because he had just fed them and they're starting to connect some dots. And they asked Jesus, can we not have more of this bread? And Jesus says to them some very hard and some very offensive things that if you can get past, then you too can have peace within your soul. Jesus speaking metaphorically in John chapter 6, verse 49 to 51, Jesus said this, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. I am the living bread that come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is claiming that his life will purchase the world. In other words, his pending loss his suffering on the cross was a transaction to purchase the world. Everyone. And that means that if you prefer your own bread and you just want to have happiness your way and don't come to Jesus because he, he's, he is the true supply of bread, you're going to starve in the wilderness like the forefathers in Israel. Jesus is offering his eternal flesh as a substitution for you. But you've got to come humbly and ask him for the bread that you need. See, it's metaphorical. He's talking not literally of his body, but the fact that it was broken and it was bled out, it was all done to purchase eternal life. And if you want eternal life, You've got to come to him humbly and ask for it. You've got to believe that your life was purchased and it's now owned by God. It's now owned by Jesus because he gave his life for it. He bought it. And so when you realize this, what you'll be doing is you'll be feeding on his body. You will be drinking his blood. And that's the only way that you can enter into heaven. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically. But in a way that's still metaphorical, not actual, the body and the cup that we pass in communion is a mechanism of communicating that we have come to Jesus to feed upon him. 
because there's no other place we can go for the bread that we so desperately need. This is what Jesus said, and it's very offensive because a lot of people go in many different directions looking to satisfy their guts in so many different ways. Jesus said, look to me. I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, it's as if John was hearing from Jesus these words. John, bless you if you don't just throw over the whole thing because I wasn't what you were expecting. See, Jesus is not always the Messiah that we're looking for, but he is always what we need. That is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus turns his focus away from the messengers who came, and now he shifts gears and kind of talks more broadly to those who are listening. There's apparently a crowd here listening to Jesus, and I think speaking in code in some way in a larger setting, he's, he's kind of communicating who he is. But then he gets actually surprisingly specific about who he is. Now, in verse 7 to 15, we see this kind of questioning. Jesus is asking rhetorical questions about what they went out into the wilderness to see. Did they, they go out to see? What did they go out to look for in this person named John? Was he just like a weather vane? Like a reed shaken in the wind? Just someone who follows public opinions? Was he just a trendy happenstance? Was he a fashion show? Well, John Baptist, he is actually someone who acted like a prophet. He dressed like a prophet, and he even smelled like a prophet. No, he was way more than an actual prophet, Jesus says in verse, uh, verse 9. I tell you, he is more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it was spoken of. So if this is true about John, that he is even greater than a prophet that they might be familiar with, John acting and dressing and smelling like a prophet, what does this say about Jesus? Jesus is wanting them to start to connect the dots. He's contrasting himself. He, Jesus is not a prophet like others might have imagined. And if Jesus is more than, he is really, truly more than a more than prophet. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a rabbi par excellence. He was, he could, he could look at the scriptures in ways that would just, just blows your mind. In fact, he, 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 Jesus has blown the minds of Bible interpreters for the last 2,000 years. Because he does things with scripture that others say, I don't think we're supposed to do that. But he does it anyway. Jesus was that prodigy who was 12 years old, sitting in the temple, talking to the, the teachers and astounding them. And now Jesus gives us a way that explains why Jesus could claim that he is more than 
even the greatest of prophets. Jesus quotes in verse uh, 10 what appears to be from the book of Malachi. However, it's not. It's actually not from the book of Malachi, all of it. It's synthesized, it's brought together from multiple texts, showing that Jesus could read the whole Old Testament scriptures and draw out the significant points that speak to him. And as Jesus looked at this text, he was seeing how, uh, it says, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's literally what Malachi 3.1 says, but that's not what Jesus quoted in Matthew. Notice the extra underlined words. Where does this all come from? Well, this comes from blending together motifs in scripture, and forgive me for spending a little time here, but this is, I think, really helpful to understand scriptures as you're looking at them and wondering, where does this come from? I believe that in Exodus chapter 23, uh, Jesus is making reference to a messenger who went before the children of Israel into Canaan. Notice the similarity in the words. Behold, I send an angel or a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him, for my name is written in him. It's really remarkable that the stories of Israel have an have a overlay to the person of Jesus Christ. Because Matthew recognized when Jesus was born, Jesus went and reenacted some of the key events of Israel's storyline. Jesus was taken as an infant down to Egypt, and then he was brought back out of Egypt again. And Matthew said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And he turned that to point to Jesus. Absolutely remarkable. That's a quotation Matthew makes at the end of chapter 4, but he's referring to Hosea 11.1. 1. This, this is remarkable on many levels because what Jesus is saying is that if there is a messenger that goes before Israel, how much more would there be a messenger that would go before him? If Jesus is the true son of God, Israel was the corrupted son of God. Here we have Jesus standing before them, making bold claim that he is now the one for whom all of Israel had been looking for, the one who represents the community, and the Father sees it. Now, I apologize for taking some time in this. Really important, though. Jesus observed, as I said, the entire story is continuing and containing a deeper prophetic story about himself. Do you remember when the disciples were walking back? They were walking with Jesus after the resurrection. What did Jesus do? He opened to them the scriptures and showed how everything related to him. Jesus is doing that this moment. And God, who called Israel out of Egypt, sent a messenger, and now Jesus is having a messenger go before him. Now, what Jesus is saying by weaving these all together into Malachi 
is that John is a messenger who goes before the face of the Messiah. And what this means is that this is an incarnation of the actual Son of God. Malachi chapter 3, behold, I, that's, G, that's God the Father speaking, I will send my messenger and he will go and prepare the way before me. This messenger, if it's John, is preparing a way for the incarnation of God. This is Jesus' claim that he is. This is the portrait that, John is make, that Jesus is making about himself. He is the incarnation of the Son of God, and John goes before him as a great forerunner. Now, Jesus compliments John and says, you know, of all the women that birth children, John was the greatest of those born of women. There's none greater than John because he was the last, Jesus says. He was the last of the line of prophets that were coming to tell about the Messiah's entrance into the world. And this is a really remarkable claim that Jesus makes, that he is making, that he is the incarnated Son of God. But there is more. There is more that Jesus is making claim to. Now look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12 we see in verse 12, it says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. That little phrase, from the days of John the Baptist, he's speaking of the era in which John lived, the era of the prophets, which is until now. And those were the folks those were the people who mediated the message from God, God who ruled and reigned over Israel. Messages came through these prophets during that era. And John was the last here of that era. And the particular reason for that is because where the king is, there is no need to communicate on his behalf. And furthermore, Jesus is making a very bold claim. He's saying, where the king is, there is also the kingdom. The power of the kingdom resides in the king. There's no need for a messenger. Because the king is there, can speak for himself. And he speaks on behalf of the whole kingdom. We don't like to think in terms of that way because we're a, a republic. We have representatives that speak for us. It's hard for us to hear that there would be a king that would speak for the whole country. Uh, well, we do have a little bit of a hybrid. And unfortunately, at times, our president speaks for the whole country. And the question that is being asked here implicitly by Jesus is, if John the Baptist was the last in these line, and he was the greatest of these, can you not see who I am? Do you have eyes to see, ears to hear, my teaching, my miracles? Do you not see who I claim to be? Prophets were very uniquely qualified to hear. 
They were uniquely qualified to see what other people in Israel could not see. But this is important because after Christ was buried, he was resurrected, and he rose from the grave, the Holy Spirit was spread out indiscriminately upon all flesh so that they too could see. And so it's not only the prophets of the old era who see, it is the church who sees. If you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, you are qualified to see that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the question is, do you see him for who he is? Jesus is the coming king. He is resurrected and ruling even now, and he expresses his rule through the church today. Now, this is what confused John. John thought he was the Elijah who was supposed to come. And Jesus says to those who are listening in verse, uh, verse 14, and he says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. That's remarkable. Because Jesus doesn't force everyone to see what's going on. If they could see who Jesus was, his glorious kingdom would have come. But not all could see. And Elijah was potentially that warning agent who would warn of the day of wrath to come. John thought he was doing God's will, and, and to a degree he was. He was preaching judgment coming if you don't turn to Christ. But then Christ didn't do the things that he thought that Jesus was going to do, like overthrow the government and, 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 and do all of these acts of fire and brimstone. And that's what confused John. He thought he was the Elijah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He may not be who we're looking for, but he is truly who we need. There's this one last movement in this text, verse 16 to 19. We have Jesus sharing a parable to kind of wrap this all up, and I will wrap this all up as well. In verse 16 to 19, we have this like uh, metaphor of like children out kind of like bantering with other children across the street. You know, they, they played some music and the other kids don't like what they hear. And it's almost like Jesus expressing that, that John and Jesus are like the kids sitting on the curb calling out to those kids who don't like what they hear. It's like Jesus saying, hey, we played wedding music for you, and you didn't dance. What's wrong? Didn't you say that's what you wanted? And then there's another, John's voice comes out, and like, he was the one who was playing the funeral dirge, and then there was no mourning. <laughs> In either case, people didn't like what they were hearing. They were disinterested. They actually could care less. And then they refused the truth because 
They didn't really want it. And I believe that they were actually afraid. Because the Messiah who came to them to tell them that he was the bread of life was requiring that they change their whole lives and follow him. And I believe people today are the same. When they hear that being a follower of Jesus means I give up some of the things that I used to enjoy, those, those guilty pleasures, they, they say, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this message, I don't like this song. Abby was telling me recently about a Facebook po post I'm not on Facebook, but I hear things every once in a while. From a mom who is self-described, she was like 34 years old. She described that she and her husband were drowning in debt. And she admitted that she was a big spender and she liked to buy lots of fast food. They were like credit card debts of over $10,000. They, they just didn't, there was like all kinds of problems that they were we're going through and she claimed in her post that she was looking for help but then she says this I mean any suggestions I'm quoting any suggestions Dave Ramsey I know works but I tried reading a book of his from the library and it's so brutal we need financial help in managing our money in smarter ways but we we don't want to literally not be able to buy some things that we want let me just rephrase this. Dave Ramsey may not, may not be what you want, but frankly, he's vindicated by those who actually follow his program. Eating beans and rice is not necessarily enjoyable. Yeah, it's humiliating when others go out to spend and you can't participate. But so is humbling yourself and saying, I am. I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus to save my soul. Those are some of the hardest words to articulate out of your mouth. But Jesus is vindicated by those who follow him. Those who humble themselves and see that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, the one who created the world the one who gave up his life to purchase the world, the one who rules and reigns and everything is coming like a finely tuned clock to a conclusion. Those who see that portrait of Jesus and humble themselves and repent of their sins find that they are blessed. They have wholeness of hearts because they're not offended by what Jesus says of himself. Jesus is not always the Messiah we are looking for, but he is always what we need. And I know that it is hard to communicate this truth to others, and it can cause us to take up an offense about Jesus. Why does he have to talk like that? can't we just kind of like coddle people into the kingdom? No. 
you must believe. You must repent of trying to eat your own bread and feast upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.